Matthew chapter 19, we pick it up in verse 1 here. And Matthew writes, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these, thing, these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Moses because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So if you're visiting us this morning, uh, you know, you're so welcome. We're thank thankful that you're here watching online. We uh, are glad you're tuning in and, and studying the Word of God with us. You know, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been taking this deep dive into the Gospel. Uh, it's our heart to, to learn everything we can, everything that the Holy Spirit moved on Matthew's heart to record for us. And this morning, we come to Jesus' teaching on divorce, marriage, and also remarriage. And it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. So again, what we see is just great multitudes of people following Jesus. And Matthew wants us to know that it's not just a large crowd that's following Jesus. It's not just a bunch of people that are hanging out there with them. To describe the, the crowd that's following Jesus uh, as a multitude would be inaccurate. So Matthew tells us that there was, a, was great multitudes, plural, that were following Jesus. All through the gospel, we constantly see multitudes gathering to Jesus and following him. And again, we see Jesus' love and compassion for the people here in this verse, in that he healed them there. All who were in need of healing came to Jesus, and Jesus healed them. And in a parallel passage found in Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus also taught the multitudes. You know, and I love that, because I think the most loving thing a person can do is teach others about the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. You know, we read in John's gospel that Jesus is the good shepherd. 
And the way a good shepherd feeds his sheep is, to, is uh, by teaching them the word of God. Now, this area that Jesus has gone into on the east side of the Jordan, it's called Perea. Okay, it's the area that John the Baptist was baptizing people in previously. And this whole story now takes place just north of the Dead Sea. And it says in verse 3, the Pharisees came to him, testing him. Matthew says that the Pharisees come to Jesus. They're going to ask him a question, but it's not an honest question. It's not a question that, you know, they're looking for an answer for. It's not a question that they've been wrestling with for some time and can't come to some conclusion. You know, they, they can't come to an honest conclusion regarding this question. So they take it to Jesus so that they can find out what the right thing is in the situation. That's not what's happening here. They bring this question to Jesus in order to, to test him. They bring this question to Jesus in order to um, trap him in his words. They're hoping to have something to accuse him of later. So they come to Jesus and ask him a question regarding one of the most theologically controversial questions of the day. And they ask him uh, a question regarding divorce. And divorce, you know, it remains one of the most theologically controversial questions and issues in our day, you know, even within Christianity. And this is the question that they asked Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? So they bring up the, this issue of divorce. And don't forget, they're testing Jesus with this question. We have to remember that. You know, they think they're going to back him into a corner with this question. They think however Jesus answers this question, you know what? They're going to have something to accuse him with. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason at all? Yeah, do you believe that, Jesus? Do you believe man is able to divorce his wife for just any reason? Is that what you believe? Now, if Jesus says, yes, it's okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, then the multitudes would be divided. There would be some who would be in agreement with him, and then there would be some that would be in strong disagreement with him. You know, if Jesus says, no, it's not okay, well, then there would be people that would agree with him on that side of the argument. And then on the other side of the argument, there'd be people that would vigorously disagree with him. However, Jesus would answer, the question was designed to divide this multitude that's following him. It was an attempt uh, to turn a large portion of the crowd against him. And this question would put an end to what the Pharisees were so jealous about. And that's Jesus's popularity with the common people. Within the nation of Israel, the religious Jews were divided on the issue of divorce. And there were famous rabbis who had strong followings that took opposing uh, positions on this topic. And uh, one was named Rabbi Shammai, and he interpreted the law of Moses very conservatively. You know, he thought that a man could divorce his wife uh, if he found uncleanness in her, but he could only divorce her by writing a certificate of divorcement. It was a legal proceeding. We'll talk a little bit more about it. 
But this was all based on what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. The passage in Deuteronomy 24 that we just read wasn't intended to make divorce easy. It was intended to protect that person that was being divorced. So all the rabbis got together and said, if you can divorce a wife for uncleanness, then what would be considered uncleanness so that we would know what legitimate grounds of divorce would be, right? Well, Rabbi Shammai, he was more conservative in his interpretation. He interpreted, he, he taught that it was only sexual immorality that would be grounds for divorce. He taught that the Lord, when the Lord spoke to Moses in the law of Moses, God was referring to sexual immorality. That was the uncleanness that he was referring to. Divorce could only happen if a woman broke that marriage uh, commitment. And as you might guess, as I already said, there's two groups. There's also a more liberal group of rabbis, um, you know, that were led by a rabbi named Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel, who was much, much more liberal, you know, he had a group of rabbis, and, uh, you know, their interpretation of divorce, you know, what he declared was that uncleanness could mean anything, you know, that displeased uh, her husband. So, you know, if he didn't like her personality after a while, you know, if he didn't like uh, her looks as she was growing older, you know, certainly if she was unable to bear him children, you know, Hillel uh, even went so far, along with another rabbi, Akaba, went so far that if a man meant another woman that pleased him more than his wife, well, I mean, he could divorce his wife. You know, and as you might uh, conclude, you know, Rabbi Hillel's interpretation of the law was the more popular uh, view. And it grew to the point that a man could divorce his wife for just any reason at all. And it was kind of like the way it is uh, in, in America now. You know, it's kind of a no-fault divorce kind of thing, right? And so there was this division between the religious leaders uh, of the day over this issue. And again, I think it's important to remember where this story takes place. It takes place in an area that's being ruled over by Herod Antipas, right? When Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom and, uh, amongst his four sons. You know, Philip, uh, who ruled over Eturia. Philip, uh, you know, this is the Philip that had Herodias as his wife. Herodias divorced Philip and then became married, uh, then married Herod Antipas. Uh, another one of his sons was Archelaus. Archelaus ruled over Judea, Samaria, <clears throat> and Idiomia. Licinius was another son. He was a ruler over Abilene. And then Herod Antipas, he ruled over this area of Perea where these events take place. The Pharisees come to Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, the Pharisees come to Jesus with this question, wanting to get Jesus on the record explaining his views on divorce. I mean, they suspected that his views on divorce were probably the same views that John the Baptist had. 
And you'll remember that John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod Antipas. And not only was he imprisoned, <clears throat> but he was also beheaded because John took this strong stance on divorce. Again, Herod Antipas uh, took his brother's wife after they both divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other. And John the Baptist spoke out against this, saying that it was unlawful for Herod to have his uh, brother Philip's wife. And that stance cost John the Baptist <clears throat> his life. And I think that the Pharisees might even be hoping at this point that the same fate would befall Jesus, suspecting that, um, you know, he too would speak out strongly on the issue of divorce. And if Jesus took a strong stance, maybe it would also anger Herod Antipas and he would act in a similar manner to how he uh, acted with John the Baptist. And then at that point, the Pharisees would be rid of Jesus. You know what? They would, they would uh, just get their dreams. You know, it's completely speculation on my part. I know that, that that's what's behind uh, them bringing this question to Jesus. But what we do know is that the Pharisees are actively looking, searching for a way they can destroy Jesus. So I don't think that that, um, you know, scenario is too far-fetched. Now, Jesus is massively popular at this point in time of his ministry. So the Pharisees, they pose this question to Jesus in order that he'll lose half of his following, no matter how he answers the question. And it's very clever what they're doing. It's very clever what the Pharisees are doing. And they actually think that they have Jesus right where they want him. I mean, <clears throat> if it were you and me, uh, you know, their plan would work. But trying to outwit and trap, you know, the Son of God, well, that's a little uh, harder to do. You know, you probably got to wake up pretty early in the morning to do that. You know, I mean, the reality is just not going to happen, right? So is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? In verse 4, he answered and said to them, have you not read? Now, we need to understand Jesus saying, have you not read? That's like a slap in the face to the Pharisees, right? No one spoke to them like that. I mean, these guys were the experts on the law of Moses. These guys are the brainiacs of Judaism. You know, saying this would be like asking Albert Einstein if he knew anything about math, right? I mean, Jesus, you know, he leads out with this question saying, oh, have you never read? And then he quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And, and this is a massive insult. I don't think Jesus is intentionally, purposely trying to insult these guys. But hey, guess what? This is his answer, right? It would have been incredibly humiliating to the Pharisees. I mean, they're trying to trap Jesus in this public setting. And now Jesus is going to address them in that same public setting. Verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he, referring to God the Father, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female? He's quoting from Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, 
I don't want to really get off on a rabbit trail here. You know, but really, what's so hard to understand what was just read? And what's so hard about that? I mean, if you don't know that there's a difference, and, and I'm just speaking generally, if you don't know there's a difference between men and women, and I'm not just talking about physiologically, I mean, there's, there's such an unmistakable difference between us. You know, I'm learning about it more and more every day. Tina and I, we're very different people. You know, she's cold, I'm hot. She wants to turn the thermostat up, I want to turn the thermostat down. You know, she sleeps with a blanket, I don't want to sleep with a blanket, right? She wants to shop, I want to go and get it and get out, you know? Uh, she's still getting ready when I'm ready to go, and she doesn't like messes, and like I said earlier, I'm just a hot mess, you know? Uh, really, it's so very obvious that we're made differently. Anyone who doesn't want to recognize it is willfully ignorant of the facts. And I heard somebody say once that the definition of willfully ignorant is stupid by choice. And honestly, I can't really argue with that definition. I think it's true. The efforts to erase gender in our country is actually an insult to both men and women. You know, it's an effort to eradicate uh, what we were created to be. We're created to be complementary. Eve came out of the side of Adam, right? Uh, she was woman taken out of man. And both men and women, both of them, represent God in his beauty and in his wonder. You know, just as a quick side note, did you notice, uh, did you hear the U.S. just four days ago issued the world's first gender-neutral passport? You know, so now when you apply for a passport, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to select your gender as male, female, or X. Just happened four days ago. God help us, man. I mean, you know what? America doesn't want to be behind anybody. Um, God help us. The efforts in our country to pit the sexes against one another you know, this one's better than that one or, or whatever. I saw a school board meeting just a week ago and the chairwoman said outright, we don't need a man on this board, especially not a white male, you know? I mean, the effort to degrade masculinity in our country and to abandon uh, femininity, you know, is to reject that there are males and that there are females which is really, in my book, it's pretty terrific in and of itself. You know, I don't understand why people just can't accept it and just see it for how wonderful it is, right? I don't know why people uh, don't accept it and just get on about their own business. I mean, what a crazy world we live in, you know? Anyway, sorry to uh, detour, but really, the whole thing's a fool's errand. You know, it's completely crazy, insane. The reason... The only reason there's an issue in our culture today is because people have too much time on their hands. You know, they got too much money. There's too many PhDs running around and people have been educated beyond their ability to think and have become completely irrational and unreasonable. And that's just my opinion. Again, I don't mean to burden you with it. By the way, uh, <laughs> you might want to notice that Jesus said he, referring to God the Father, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. There's no evolution. God made them. In the beginning, 
God created. So Jesus quotes from Genesis 1 saying that God made them male and female. And he goes on to say, verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, Jesus begins to address the issue of marriage by quoting uh, John 2, 24, which is the first mention of marriage in the Bible. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, a man shall leave the influence of his mom and dad and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Pharisees come to Jesus asking about the law of Moses, which says that a man could divorce his wife with the writing of divorcement. And what Jesus does is he takes them to the word. You know, it's such a great example to us. You know, when somebody comes to me to ask me a question, I mean, really, who cares what Gary thinks? You know, uh, what they need to know and what they should want to know is what God thinks, right? What does God's word have to say about that issue they're asking a question about? You know, that's the only thing that really matters. When someone comes to you, you know, with a question, take them to the word. Show them in the word, you know, what God says or what he thinks about that issue. That's really the most loving thing that we can do is show them what God says. Well, Jesus takes them to the word, takes them beyond the law of Moses. He takes them back to the beginning. He takes them to the creation where marriage is first mentioned. And he shows them that it's between one man and one woman. And it's to be for life barring biblical grounds for divorce or death. And to tear apart a marriage is like ripping apart a body, tearing a body in pieces because the two have become one flesh. And I think it's very interesting. They come to Jesus wanting to talk about divorce and Jesus turns the subject into marriage, right? He wants to talk about marriage. Often, it's the case when a couple comes to a pastor or they go to a friend. When they come for marriage counseling, often what they want to talk about is divorce. They, they want out of the marriage. And they'll, they'll say it in no uncertain terms. And we read in the book of Malachi that God hates divorce. And you know what? It really breaks my heart. Every time I hear that a Christian recommends divorce to an individual going through marital problems. And it happens often, surprisingly. When Christians give that kind of advice, they're pitting themselves against God, right? They become part of the problem because God hates divorce. The conversation needs to be about reconciliation, right? Too many people want to begin where these religious leaders begin with divorce instead of looking to what God has to say about marriage. Jesus doesn't talk to the religious leaders here about divorce. He takes them back to the beginning, right? He goes to a higher ground and takes, uh, talks to them about God's original intent for marriage, that it would be a lifelong union between a husband and a wife with the exceptions of death or biblical grounds for divorce. <clears throat> Jesus goes on to give the religious leaders now, his commentary on the verses that he quotes from in Genesis 1 and 2, verse 6. So then, there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate that. Now, 
When you go to a wedding, you hear that phrase all the time, don't you? What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, right? It comes from what Jesus is saying right here in this verse, right? Jesus sees marriage as a man and a woman coming together to become one flesh. A man and a woman becomes one flesh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, through a marriage relationship. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. But also, they become one flesh in the children they they produce. Uh, 23 chromosomes from each. 23 chromosomes from the husband. 23 chromosomes from the wife. Producing a child. Becoming one flesh before your eyes. It's quite amazing. The Pharisees come to Jesus asking about the law of Moses. And Jesus says, I'm I'm going back to the beginning and see what God has to say. And the word says from the beginning, what God has joined in marriage, let no man separate. So it takes it out of the hands of a bunch of rabbis gathering together, sit in a room uh, discussing, you know, in order to determine what basis, you know, uh, people can divorce. When people get married, they're to remain married and no man is to attempt to separate them. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command? I mean, I can see a grin on their face right now. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Well, first off, Moses commanded nothing. Okay, get that straight. God allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to put his wife away. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But at this point, the Pharisees, they think they've got Jesus on the ropes. You know, I can just see him there wringing their hands. You know, they're all right, we got him now. Because Jesus has gone back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And it sounds like Jesus is putting himself against the law of Moses. And we have to remember, the Jewish leaders, they accepted the entire Old Testament, you know, the law and the prophets, they accepted it as the word of God. But if they considered anything to be supremely the word of God, then it would be the law of Moses. So if Jesus is, if he's saying something against the law of Moses, then he must be against God. And then he can't be God. And if that's the case, then how could he possibly claim to be the son of God? And the religious leaders, they, they know exactly what they're trying to do here. They're clever. You know, and they're saying, so, Jesus, if this is true, then why did God the Father allow Moses to give the command uh, to write a certificate of divorce to put uh, your, their wives away? You know what? Why did he allow divorce in the law of Moses if no man was to separate uh, what's been joined together? Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to, to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You know, it's amazing to hear and to understand, according to Jesus, divorce is an issue of the heart. All the reasons people will give to justify uh, why they're getting a divorce, according to Jesus, the issue like so many other issues in our lives, 
It, it goes back to the heart. You know, the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. So often people will allow their hearts to grow hard towards their spouses. Either one uh, or the other or both parties will allow their hearts to grow hard towards uh, one another. And when that happens, they're done. They just want out. And what Jesus is saying here is divorce was allowed in the law of Moses because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was never the intention of God. A marriage was always, except in the case of death or for sexual immorality, which is a biblical grounds for divorce, it was always intended by God to be for life. Other than that, divorce, you know, occurs because of the hardness of heart by at least one and often both parties, right? So Jesus says it was allowed because of the hardness of heart. And as I said earlier, this was given in the law of Moses as a protection for the wife, right? So that a man couldn't just discard his wife so that she'd no longer be supported or cared for. The idea was that divorce wasn't to be done rashly in the heat of anger. There was to be a cooling off period where bruised egos and hurt feelings had time to heal. And if a divorce did occur, it would be done with a legal formality. It was an effort to make divorce something that people wouldn't just do casually, even if there were biblical grounds for divorce. And Jesus continues and says, verse 9, and I, said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So now Jesus, speaking with authority, declares his stand on divorce, answering the Pharisees' questions, right? He declares uncleanness as sexual immorality. And he says, if a man divorces his wife for just any reason other than sexual immorality, well, then uh, he marries another or a woman, uh, marries or he marries a woman who's divorced just for any reason other than sexual immorality, well, then he's committing adultery. Jesus settles the issue here, and he's the son of God, right? He knows the law of Moses, and he knows what the intent of God was when the father gave the law to Moses, right? So when Moses wrote about uncleanness, just to be clear, it wasn't because there were dirty dishes in the sink. It wasn't because the house wasn't tidied up when, you know, uh, the Pharisee came home. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with uh, the woman's ability to bear children, right? It had nothing to do with her looks or her personality changing with time, the way Rabbi Hillel interpreted uncleanness. Uncleanness was always intended to refer to sexual immorality. Now, I think... What happens here, as Jesus lays this out for the religious leaders, saying that sexual immorality is the only grounds for divorce and interpreting the law of Moses in this way, I think he came down much stronger than even the disciples were expecting. You know, and I just want to, let me just make a comment here before we move on regarding marriage. We all know that the divorce rate in our country is astronomically high. I mean, you may not even realize how high it is. 
out of every 1.8 marriages, there's a divorce. That's 59%, right? 59% of all marriages end in divorce. 70% of second and third marriages fail, right? And the divorce rate among professing Christians isn't, you know, actually a lot better. I mean, it's pretty high still. Among professing evangelical Christians, the divorce rate is one in three, right? And Jesus comes in and takes the stand. What should produce in us as Christians, this stand should produce in us as Christians, uh, you know, the highest view of marriage of any people in the world simply because Jesus has this high view of marriage, right? There should never be casual divorce or divorce for just any reason. And I just don't love them anymore. You know what? We got married young, and now that I've grown, you know, I see it was a mistake. We need to get a divorce. The only reason for separation and remarriage is sexual immorality or death. Not any other stuff that's going on in our culture today, right? Especially uh, any stuff that's going on amongst Christians. Jesus is stand on divorce, which happens to be God's stand on divorce, surprisingly, seems cruel to a lot of people, you know? But one of the things that casual divorce does, these fast and easy divorces, what it does is it undermines the institution of marriage. Marriage is an institution initiated by God. It's the only thing, if you think about it, it's the only thing that has continued that started in the garden. That's it. That's all that we have from that time. You know, when you destroy marriage, which is the foundation of the family unit, when you destroy marriage, when you make it something that's taken lightly, you know, and uh, people marry and divorce just on a whim over, you know, based on something, that thing, or based on that thing, whatever feels good to them at the time, you know, the way they're doing the way they were doing under the liberal interpretation of the law, you know, of many of the rabbis during Jesus' day. What they're doing is they're just destroying the foundation of the family unit. They're destroying the family unit. And when Jesus talks about the fact that what God has joined together, let no man separate, the idea is when people marry, there's a union that occurs. And it's a very intimate union. It's intimate physically, and it's intimate emotionally, and it's intimate, um, you know, uh, mentally and intellectually. And, you know, it's intimate spiritually. When Jesus talks about two people being joined together, it's like glue being, you know, two pieces of paper being glued together. Uh, Jeff gave an example. He didn't know, I don't know, did you know I was teaching on this this morning? He gave an example during their wedding. The pastor got some epoxy and, and uh, put the epoxy, the two pots of epoxy, mixed it and said, nobody can unmix this. Now that it's mixed, nobody can unmix this. And that's the, the, uh, the thing that's going on. To separate these two pieces of paper that's been glued together, you know, uh, essentially what you do is you damage, severely damage those two pieces of paper as you try to pull them apart, separate them. The end product is you have two pieces 
of damaged, destroyed pieces of paper. You know what happens in divorce? And we're not talking about paper anymore. We're talking about people. We're talking about human beings with emotions. Now we're talking about the well-being of a, a person spiritually and emotionally. And what happens in a divorce is it produces wounds so terrible, so awful. They have um, long-lasting effect on people, if not lifelong-lasting effects, right? There are divorcees who have said that it's worse than death. And if, you're, if you've been divorced, maybe that resonates you, with you. Maybe that's your, your testimony. At any rate, God knows what marriages produce, right? You know, the beauty that's found within uh, a marriage bond, the interconnectedness that's there, the, the sacredness of it. For someone, because of the hardness of their heart to, to tear that apart, the damage and destruction that comes from that is unimaginable. And then you turn and you look at the damage that, you know, is done to the kids when parents get divorced. You know, uh, the, the terror that occurs within the kids' lives, the path that divorce, uh, you know, the path that the kids of divorced parents are put upon instantly. You know, it's a very high percentage uh, of kids coming from a divorced uh, family. Something like 80, 90% of the kids instantly, the day after the divorce takes place, instantly those kids are thrown into poverty. And that's just the reality of it all. Divorce does a horrible thing to children. You know, I have a, uh, one of my best friends, pastors, uh, Pursuit Christian Fellowship in Gilbert. He's told me many times that, you know what? He's never recovered from his parents being divorced when he was a kid. You know, he's never recovered. You know, it's just that devastating on him. It's that devastating on kids. What's important for us to understand, and it's lost in our culture because we're such a selfish culture. And by nature, each one of us are, are selfish, right? But our culture looks at life and concludes, I'm the most important person in life. You know what? I'm the most important person in the world. My happiness is the only thing that matters. That wasn't always true of previous generations, though, in America. A lot of people, you know, had marriages. You know, they held marriages together for the sake of their kids, you know, that they might not, you know, be, married, uh, be happy as they held that marriage together. But it was a lesser degree of unhappiness right, that uh, then tearing the family apart through divorce, you know, that what that produces in the hearts and the minds of the souls of the kids, man, that unhappiness of keeping that marriage together, it was a lesser of two evils. And when we talk about God's stance on divorce, to those who are non-believers and to, you know, really to a lot of believers also for that matter, you know, when we talk about God's stance on divorce, it's like we're from a different planet. And that's because divorce in our culture is so quick and easy. All I want is what makes me happy. And I'll keep blowing through relationships until I find that one that makes me happy. Right? The problem is if people are willing to throw off marriage every time it starts to get a little difficult, then no marriage is going to last. One of the great things that Jesus does here 
is he puts this perimeter, a very hard wall up related to divorce. Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, you need to stay in the marriage. And we need to know, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. We're to stay in the marriage and work things out. Statistically, 86% of unhappy marriages, you know, unhappy couples who work through their problems and stick with it, found that five years later, their marriages are happy, right? There are many other studies that report the same time frame on average, five years. And according to the analysis of the National Survey of Families and Households, nearly three-fifths of those who said their marriage was unhappy and they stayed married and, and uh, they, they rated their marriage as very happy, quite happy after five years, right? They worked it out. And these were couples that were ready to throw in the towel and get a divorce. And I think that so much of the joys in this life result from the difficult situations and hardships that we actually endure. You know, it's not when everything's going easy. That's not the time that we experience this great joy. Uh, kids are difficult. But you know what? If you can endure the childhood years and the teenage years, boy, those kids just are such a source of tremendous joy in our lives. You know, marriage can be difficult. And when people, uh, who's, you know, for people that stick it out, there's such joy ahead when you don't quit. The worst marriages experience the greatest turnarounds. You know, the study showed 70% of the marriages that rated their marriages very unhappy. They rated their marriage as a one on a scale of seven. And you know what? A one on a scale of seven, you can't get much worse than a one. That one's, that one's a problem. You know what? Five years later, those couples uh, stated that the same marriage was either very happy or quite happy. God has a way of using hard things in our life to create in us a character that he desires, a character that would never come about if we were spared the hardships. If we weren't forced to work through the hardships instead of running away, trying to escape the problems, you know, that pleasing character, that character that's pleasing to the Lord would never come about in our lives. If we fail to work through the difficult things in life, then we'll just be faced, uh, we'll just face those difficult things over and over again as they keep reoccurring in our life. Our tendency is to run from hardship and it's not always the best thing for us to do. And Jesus gives us these boundaries. <clears throat> I don't think that there are many marriages. I don't know if there, I don't know if I can go as far as I don't think there are any marriages. But I, I think, you know, uh, most marriages, many marriages, they face this time where both parties might say something like, you know what, I can't stand her. You know what, I hate him too. You know what, I'm tired of him. He never picks up his socks. Man, she's always giving me a hard time about clothes and drawers. I can't take it, you know. And that's the way it is even in Christian marriages. But we stay together because that's what the Bible says to do. That's what we're to do in marriage, right? The culture says, if you're unhappy, get out. Your happiness is the most important thing. And to my amazement, 
Even Christians will counsel others who are facing problems in the marriage to get out. And like I said, it breaks my heart when Christians say, hey, go ahead and leave him or her. God will understand. He'll forgive you. You know what? We're to, we're to stay together. We're to work through difficulties. And I truly, truly believe in my heart, if we'll pray, if we'll humble ourselves, not wait for the other one to be humble, but if we'll humble ourselves and sincerely seek the Lord and wait upon Him, if we'll commit ourselves to being obedient to the Lord, He'll work in that marriage. He'll turn that marriage around and make it a relationship that's the most wonderful, the most treasured relationship in all of life. And I've seen many marriages. I've seen many marriages where both parties were committed to seeking, uh, seeking the Lord and seeing Him work. I've seen many marriages turn around and become a tremendous a testimony of God's grace. You know what's happening to many baby boomers today? Because they grew up in the 60s, you know, and I know I'm not speaking to many baby boomers today, but, uh, you know, maybe you might know somebody. But because they grew up in the 60s, a time that promoted, you know, free sex, you know, just roll through relationships, no lasting commitment, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. That generation is heading into old age completely lonely because they've cast off all relationships earlier in life that were needed for meaning, for stability, and for significance later in life, right? They threw all those relationships away for selfish reasons under the guise of the new morality or sexual liberty. Now they come to an age in life where it's too late to develop those meaningful relationships, and now they're facing old age with shallow, surfacey relationships rather than the deep, meaningful relationship God would have us uh, enjoy, you know? And, and I know there are two sides of divorce and remarriage, and I'm trying uh, not to personalize uh, this towards anybody's situation. I'm purposely trying to keep it uh, general, you know? But at the same time, I'm not walking away from anything that I've said either, right? My point is this. The indoctrination of the culture is conforming the church and Christians in a way that's not being recognized, right? And Jesus says, when you marry, you're to work through your problems. And I personally believe that even in the case of sexual immorality, even though it's an acceptable grounds of divorce, I personally believe that God's heart would be reconciliation in that situation other than divorce, because God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. One of the things that this would do, right, if God's standard was the recognized standard, it would make people a lot more discerning and careful regarding who they married. It wouldn't be something like, I met the man of my dreams yesterday and today we're heading to Vegas to get married, right? It would cause people to stop and really seek the Lord and to wait upon him if his standard of marriage was the standard held by all. And you younger people that are here that aren't married, that's the standard that you need and that's what you need to do is wait. Wait on the Lord, you know? People would wait if that was the standard. People would wait to hear from the Lord. 
is this the person you have for me, Lord? People would wait to hear from the Lord and people would understand more and think through the commitment that's being made. The commitment that's being made before the Lord when they're joined together in marriage. God has a way when he's given a chance to work within a marriage. And believe me when I say, it's not easy. I know it's not easy. It's not easy for us, you know? But it forces us to do the hard thing. It forces a relationship to grow in depth that otherwise would have never come about. It, it even if the other person doesn't want to grow, right? It forces us to grow in a relationship with the Lord in a way that a, another circumstance wouldn't allow. Sometimes it takes a hard marriage. Sometimes it takes a one-sided marriage. You know, a person might say, well, hey, I don't want to learn those uh, lessons in marriage. Thank you very much. Okay, maybe you'll get cancer and you'll learn the lesson that way. Maybe you'll go through a bankruptcy and you'll learn the lesson that way. God is going to allow you the privilege, the opportunity to learn these lessons. And God has a lot of different ways uh, that lesson can be learned. Well, you know what? <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very loving God. You know, there are lessons that can only be learned. You know, there are characteristics and qualities in a person's life that can only be gained through difficulties. And the end result is always a testimony in that person's life of God's tremendous grace, his goodness and love. But in regards to marriage and his standards here, it forces us to honor marriage in a way that Jesus uh, does, right? In a, in a way that he wants us to. And when Jesus is part of that marriage, he's going to make us into what we wouldn't otherwise have become. If we jumped out of the marriage, when things got difficult, you know, this is the level of commitment till death do us part. And then you add to that what Paul says in Ephesians, that our marriages are to be a witness of the world of what a relationship between Jesus Christ and the church is to look like Ephesians 5. I mean, what a great honor that is to reflect that relationship in our marriage. The highest thing about a Christian marriage is to be a way a husband treats his wife. It's to be a representation of Jesus' love for the church. And the way a wife is to submit to her husband is to be a picture of the body of Christ, you know, the church, a picture of our submission to the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, I've found, I don't mind telling you the truth at all, but I've found when Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, I found that that's impossible to accomplish uh, in my own strength, right? We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to work through the problems of marriage, to grow in the Lord and to seek the marriage relationship that is a witness to the world. And I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine when Paul says, wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, that that's equally impossible. You know, I can hear in the back of my mind, I can hear women today say, 
Okay, there it is. I knew he was going to get around to women submit, right? Biblical submission is not the ugly thing the world has made submission out to be, right? Jesus, who is God the Son, submitted to God the Father. He submitted to the plan of God in order to offer salvation to the world. And his submission was a beautiful act of tremendous love. You know what? When Paul says uh, up above husbands and up above wives, Ephesians 5.21, Paul says submitting one to another in the fear of God. It's not women submit. It's actually wives submit to your own husbands. But we're also to submit one to another, right? We're to give preference to each other. And in doing so, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll be a witness to the world, right? Please don't think that I've arrived at, at all of this. I haven't, you know, but I'm praying and I'm seeking the Lord to enable me to be the husband that he wants me to be, to be, you know, a, a witness to the world. And I encourage you, please, please pray for me. Pray for Tina that she'd be the, the wife God wants her to be. Pray for our marriage as we pray for yours. You know, every Saturday, almost every Saturday, uh, at least in my recent memory, uh, every Saturday we pray for marriages, for there would be healing, that there would be growth, that there would be just, you know, a witness to the world, you know, that we might fulfill the roles that God has ordained for us in marriage, that we might be witnesses to the world. Well, in hearing what Jesus has had to say about marriage, uh, verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, I think the disciples are wowed by what Jesus has to uh, had said. You know, they didn't expect him to come down so hard on marriage and divorce. They were thinking probably, wow, if you have to stay married to a woman and you can only divorce her on the grounds of sexual immorality, and marrying a woman runs the risk of entering into a very challenging relationship, then maybe it's better not to marry at all. You know, and I think the whole thing is intended to give us pause, right? It's intended to make you think through before you leap into marriage. Verse 11, but he said to them, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. What Jesus is saying here is that those that can never marry, you know, probably, possibly because of a birth defect to uh, the sexual organs. So there are eunuchs from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. In those days, you know, if you occupied a high position in a kingdom and you had access to the king's harem, you know, typically that male servant, he would be made a human, uh, a human. He'd be made a eunuch uh, so that he could not fool around, mess up the lineage or the dynasty of the king. You know, and sometimes a king, you know, if he had a really respected, um, highly respected friend or colleague, he would offer them a lofty position in his kingdom. And that person might think, great, finally, I'm being recognized. I'm your man. And the king would say, yeah, but wait a minute. There's a catch. You know, you'll be around my wives. You know, and that person might say, well, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of okay with the job I have. And I like the idea of keeping my original equipment. You know, others might say, though, yes, I want that position and power in the kingdom. And it's worth 
never getting married or having a family. And then Jesus continued saying, uh, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs uh, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And this is talking about those who have decided to remain single, right? They don't get married in order that they can focus on the call that God has placed on their lives. You know, it's a voluntary celibacy. Again, when Jesus speaks of eunuchs in this case, there are a lot of people who have chosen not to marry, not to uh, have a family, so that they can focus their full attention on what God has called them to do. And Paul was in that category. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you would all stay single like me. It's just a lot easier uh, doing God's work. You don't have to worry about her needs. You don't have to worry about her. You know, you don't have to worry about any of those things. And Paul goes on to say, but it's not for anyone or everyone. It's a gift, right? If you don't have a desire to remain single, then, you know, you don't have that gift. So then you ought to marry and have a family. You know, there are people who live their whole lives without being married without the blessing of marriage and having a family so that they can focus on the work that God has called them to do so that they can go where God has called them to go. And Jesus goes on to say, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. It's not for everyone. You know, uh, just go ahead and close your Bibles. And, and uh, you know, just in closing, before we take communion, uh, just a couple comments. You know, in any conversation about divorce, we need to realize that there are people in the church that have experienced divorce, and many of them have remarried. You know, and so I want to close by saying this. If a Christian has divorced for some other reason other than sexual immorality, is there forgiveness for them? And the answer is, of course, yes. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ and his free gift of salvation. Divorce doesn't make a person a second-class citizen. Divorce doesn't, you know, prohibit somebody from serving in the church. But I do believe divorce is a topic, you know, that, that really breaks God's heart. And you know what? I think it's a topic that we must allow to break our hearts also. We need to remember that there are hurting people out there and there are hurting people in the church, marriages that are struggling, you know, couples wondering if they're gonna make it through. You know, there are Christians who have been sinned against and their spouse has divorced them. And you know what? Now they feel condemned by the church because they're now divorced. You know what? We need to reach out to these people with the love of Christ. And we need to be an encouragement to them. You know, we need to walk with them. We need to love them. We need to carry them to, to uh, the Lord in prayer. And we need to be part of the healing, not part of the problem. You know, um, we're going to take communion now. And, you know, it just uh, strikes me. Paul talks about presenting us as a chaste virgin bride to the Lord. You know, is we're just uh, in garments, his garments of righteousness. You know, and I just encourage you, maybe, maybe the men would come forward right now. Just want to encourage you, you know, just take communion and just let the blood of Jesus to wash over you. If you're here today, go ahead and come on forward, guys. If